Hi, everyone. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Welcome to Yoga Birth Babies, a podcast produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. We will be diving into everything prenatal yoga, birth, and baby-related, hoping to inspire, educate, and empower you through your journey into motherhood. Thank you for listening. For my yoga teacher friends who are interested in working with the pregnant population, Prenatal Yoga Center offers an 85-hour Yoga Alliance certified program based on our three-pronged theory of prenatal yoga, asana, education, and community. Once a year, we hold our three-month immersion program in New York City. For those who cannot attend this training, Caprice and I are now traveling to different locations holding our training at hosting studios where we will spend six days working together, exploring and learning about prenatal yoga. This training consists of more than 50 hours working together. We also created a whole membership website with more than 20 videos corresponding directly to the manual you will receive. For more information, check out our website at prenatalyogacenter.com. Hope to work with you soon. Take care. Hi, everyone. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. I'm your host for Yoga Birth Babies, the podcast. And momentarily, you'll be hearing the wonderful and informative and knowledgeable interview I had with Dr. George Musali. He is an obstetrician here in New York City. You'll hear all about his bio. However, I do want to give you the heads up that while we were recording this, we recorded it via Skype, there were some interruptions with the Skype connection, with our internet connection. So twice during the podcast, there'll be a break in the conversation. It's just part of the editing. It's not a particularly smooth break, just how the conversation was going during the break in our Skype connection. So just a heads up, you'll notice two little spots that are just not flowing so well. So enjoy the rest of the interview and uh, we'll chat later. Take care. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining me on Yoga Birth Babies. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. And today we're going to be talking to Dr. George Musali. Dr. George Musali has extensive experience in both hands-on daily care and administrative medicine. He is the former chairman of obstetrics and gynecology at the beloved St. Vincent Hospital in Greenwich Village, New York City. Prior to St. Vincent's, he served as chief of obstetrics in North Central Bronx Hospital, Jacoby Medical Center. As his partner, Dr. Worth often tells patients, Village OB is incredibly blessed to have Dr. Musali. He's truly a rarity, a kind, sensitive, and brilliant high-risk pregnancy doctor who loves to deliver babies and take care of his patients day and night. In the Bronx, he oversaw the pregnancy of thousands of women in a community with overwhelming rates of obesity, diabetes, hypertension, and preterm birth. Dr. Musali did his subspecialty training in Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons and is board certified in maternal fetal medicine by the American Board of Obstetrics and Gynecology. As a father of four, Dr. Musali understands the joys and heartaches of parenthood from both sides of the white coat. So one of the reasons I sought out Dr. Musali for the podcast was for the listeners to hear from an OBGYN and speak about interventions and care practices and high risk versus low risk and maternal age, among some of the other topics. I feel that many women often get to speak with their care providers for a really short time during their office visits, and they're not always fully in the understanding of what they may encounter during their births or even simply how current birth trends may directly affect their birth. So that is why we have Dr. Musali on. I'm so thrilled and honored to have you today. So without further ado, I'm just going to start with our conversation, unless there's anything that you want to add. I'm, I'm very pleased to be here, <laughs> and uh, hopefully the listeners and viewers uh, 
will uh, get some good information out of this. I think they will. You guys are an amazing practice. I always send my students there, especially if they're going for a VBAC. And they're like, oh, I'm not sure if my care provider is supportive. I'm like, well, let me tell you who is. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> You're welcome. All right, so I'm just going to kind of go basic. Can you explain the difference between the two different types of medical care, traditional obstetrics compared to more of a midwifery model of care? You know, I think that this distinction is much more of a, of a difference here in the States and maybe especially here in New York. If we look at um, how care is given for pregnant women in other countries, the midwifery model and the you know, traditional obstetrical physician model are really very complementary. And I think the concept is that the midwife is um, coming at pregnancy through viewing it through the lens of normality, that this is a normal, natural part of life and, and uh, not a disease process. At the same time, um, the doctor is uh, accustomed to uh, handling the things when uh, things go wrong. And we, and we know from nature that um, birth and pregnancy doesn't always go uh, smoothly. And so the two disciplines are really, I think, meant to go together. So um, in, in New York, I think it translates into midwives um, spending a, a lot more time on the, on the uh, uh, prenatal visit typically than the doctor does. Um, talking about uh, things and preparing the, their clients for not just the um, physical parts of pregnancy, but also the emotional, the spiritual, the psychosocial elements that often are not the strength or perhaps the focus that the obstetrician spends their, their time on. Um, so I, I think that we really need both of those disciplines that are, that are brought together, and they're meant to go together. Why do you think, I don't see it happening so much in the States, and especially where we all are in New York City, you know, where you practice, where I'm um, serving women. Why do you think it's so, di so different? You know, I, I think that the answer to that is probably complex and varied. You know, there's, there's, um, I think as it has evolved, the, the medical profession, the physician medical profession has assumed a power role and sort of gets to call the shots, if you will. And I think there are economic factors that are also involved. And, um, and so what I think large some of it for pregnancy and for obstetrics is that um, there are problems that arise. And when it was the doctor's role to step in to help with those problems, that sort of captured the attention and in some ways uh, the fears that couples you know, have. And so birth gravitated into the hospital and, and the thought was oh, that the doctor is where the expertise is. Um, and that sort of just became the uh, preeminent model of care. Um, and of course, you know, birth is compensated for, and so there are economic advantages for those who are going to be the primary you know, providers of that service. So it's gotten quite complicated, I think, and it's going to take a little bit of time and effort to unravel or peel that back into letting everybody share appropriately in the, in the care uh, of the pregnant couple. 
Yeah, I think you tapped into something. I'm diverting a little from some of the questions I prepared, but I think you tapped into something about the idea that people feel more comfortable with a doctor. And, and I don't know if it's like, I want to use the word, but like power role. Um, I know that when I chose a midwife, a lot of my family felt very nervous about that choice. And they thought, you know, do you have a doctor around if there's a midwife? And I explain, you have a backup and, you know, should something go wrong? But I think there's a societal view that doctors know best. And if you don't have a doctor, it just seems insane because I don't think a lot of people view birth as a natural process. They see it as an illness. So I'm not sure where that change, how that change can come. Well, I, I think that um, there is, you know, there are parts to pregnancy and childbirth that are complex and can mm-hmm. be scary. Yes. And, and I think it's the fears of those that what if there's something wrong with the baby? What if there's something wrong with me during my pregnancy, during my birth? That is the domain that the, the obstetrician works in. On the other hand, the majority of the pregnancies and birth are normal and are natural, and that's the domain of the midwife. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, when we are left, uh, especially around, I think, here in New York City, to sort of choose between this or that, right. that's where we have the, the tension, um, where we want to sort of... Um, more natural, less interventional approach that midwives are known for and are tip- and is just fine when and all is normal. But we want the safety of that um, obstetrician being being available. And that's why I think our current models really do fall short. And I think that as um, I, I think there's a, there's, there's a culture change that is sweeping through medicine. Um, long gone are the days when of Marcus Welby just trust me I'm your doctor and you don't ask any questions and I'll take good care of you um, and I think more and more we all are asking questions of our healthcare providers we want to be involved and informed and have options mm-hmm. and what certainly what leads to charge is is, is in pregnancy care because uh, uh, we're not ill it's not an illness it's not a disease um, but even when we are ill, that we're still, as consumers of healthcare, we're, we are leaning in that direction where we want those choices and we want to be involved. So I think that that change is going to help us to usher in a better model of care because um, doctors are going to need to recognize that they're not um, – they're, they're not, this is not what they're accustomed to, but this is exactly what midwives are accustomed to. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a lot more communication that needs to get ushered in. I think for us at Village OB, that's a part that really comes naturally to us. I mean, one of the highest compliments that we've been paid, um, somebody told us once, oh, you guys are just like midwives, except you can also do C-sections. <laughs> and, and, and I think that, that and we really take it as a compliment. And I think that that's the part that sort of is a bit unusual for many OB practices. And, and this may touch on some other things you want to you get at in, in this discussion today. But um, we are unusual in the sense that we are only practicing obstetrics in our office. We don't do any gynecology. And I'm not really aware of another uh, um, physician uh, office that does that. So you have GYN-only doctors, but those who are delivering babies are doing both OB and GYN. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that, the time that they have available for the 
uh, prenatal visit is much more limited. In fact, when you talk to OBGYNs, the, the OB patients, they do view as sort of healthy and uncomplicated and pretty straightforward. And it's in those prenatal visits that they can actually catch up on their schedule because the GYN person is going to be much more complicated. It might be an older woman who's having bleeding again, for which is not normal. She might need to have a biopsy. It could be bad news. That's a lot more complicated. And so the prenatal visit very often kind of distills down to you know, uh, a hello, check the baby's heartbeat and maybe get a question or two in and they're off to, because next door there's a, a more time-consuming GYN patient. And so, um, and so we don't have any of those patients in our practice and I think that's where our practice lends itself to bring in what a midwife often does in terms of spending the time talking about a lot of the very important uh, uh, parts to the normal pregnancy, be it nutrition, be it the fears of pain and labor, be it, um, you know, some of the other uh, psychosocial things that are happening in her life that are very much affecting what, how her pregnancy is going, uh, but, uh, it are, but don't sort of rise to the level of, let's say, a pregnancy abnormality. Mm -hmm. So the doctor is really just focusing on those bigger uh, pathological states and leaving out, you know, a whole bunch of other things. So we, we find ourselves, I think, coming back to a place where consumer demands are going are gonna to require there to be both again. And I hope that means that doctors and midwives will start to link up and work more closely together. Because in other countries they do, you know, a midwife will be there and then if a problem comes up then the OB. And I've worked even in some practices here in the city as a doula where the woman has a midwife and then should something come up, a, an, an obstetrician step in. But I want to go a little bit to what you touched upon. What do you think a woman should expect from her care provider? You know, not just the Hi, how you doing? Baby's heart rate, blood pressure, looks good, you're out of here. Like, what do you think a woman should really expect as I'm hiring you as my care provider? Not necessarily you, but just, you know, anyone. I'm hiring this person as my care provider. What should I expect besides just the five-minute um, meeting, you know, the five-minute appointments, and then what kind of support during labor? Well... I, I mean, and I think I would say, in our opinion, the, the expectation should be high. But I do think that the majority of uh, setups currently make it very difficult to meet those expectations in, a, in an obstetrics practice. Um, and so, for now, anyway, I think people need to just ask the questions very simply: How long are my are typically the prenatal visits? What kinds of things do you uh, discuss in those prenatal visits aside from, you know, things are going well? Uh, do you have any questions? Um, do you focus on nutrition? Do you focus on what to expect in terms of the larger picture of, of pregnancy? Um, how do you feel about uh, labor support? Uh, what is uh, going to be your role uh, at the time of the birth? When, would, when do I see you? Do you come at the end just to catch the baby, so to speak? Um, you know, these are, are questions that I think need to get answered. And I, and I do think that going through that process, especially in the beginning, uh, is a good way. To, it's, it is sort of like an interview, and it is a good way to get a sense of whether you are matched correctly or is that caregiver listening is that doctor you know giving you time 
It, it is complicated, though, because one of the things that's happened is with the economics, practices have gotten bigger and bigger. And so you might really hit it off with one partner and feel really good about that. But is that true of all the other partners? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one of the other disadvantages is that um, typically when you make an appointment, you come in and the first time you get to really speak to the doctor, you're, it's sort of presumed or assumed that you're already enrolled in care and you're a patient and you're going forward. And if you have that first visit and that discussion and you realize, gosh, this is not the right fit, um, you're sort of already in care and need to leave. And you almost really need a process to be able to, to meet the doctors and feel them out before you officially enroll. And that's not very few practices, I think, are granting that, in part, I think, because of the time constraints. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know I've had a lot of students find out later that they don't necessarily have the same philosophy of birth and the support they're getting from their care provider, but it's often then past, probably in their late 20-something, early 30-something week. And my own doctor told me after 23 weeks, it's hard to switch because of the financials that the doctor receives. They don't necessarily want to take someone later than that. So, yeah, I try to tell people as soon as they find out they're pregnant, maybe even before, you know, during their yeah. well woman exam, start to feel out who they chose and, you well, know, make sure it's the right fit. Yeah, I actually think you hit upon something really important and practical. Um, and what I hear all the time is that, you know, somebody is going to their gynecologist, you know, once or twice a year for years and they're fine and happy and they really like them and they just assume that when it comes to pregnancy that it's going to continue in the same relationship. But I hear over and over that actually people discover that in the role of an obstetrician as opposed to their GYN doctor, that the relationship is wanting. And, mm-hmm. and I think that, that that comes from what we are expecting as pregnant women to experience and to have in our prenatal visit. And, and so... I think it's an excellent time when you're before you're even pregnant to get a sense from your gynecologist whether they're going to be the right fit for you as well for pregnancy, which might work really well for your annual GYN visit and maybe not so well for, for your pregnancy um, visits. Um, so that, that is, I think, a, a, good, a good time and a good way to approach it. But although I have heard from lots of uh, moms that come to us, and then when they try to broach the subject about the birth and they're still early, the doctor says, oh, well, that, we, it's not time to talk about that. Yeah, it's I know. It's way too early. we got to put that off. And then by the time they're ready to t- talk about it, it is so far into the pregnancy that it is really difficult to switch. Well, I think that's a sign. If someone doesn't want to talk and give you a sense of their philosophy or even their statistics or how they practice, because I always tell my students, you know, the doctors are right to practice how they want to practice, but you have a right to choose not to be with that doctor. So I think exactly. that's very telling if they don't want to be open. So I think you've made some great points. I, I think there's also a difference, a little bit of a difference sometimes between the partners where the, the, the non-pregnant partner is often much more comfortable with how the visit went mm-hmm. and, and sometimes even surprised that their partner is upset that the doctor didn't want to talk about things yet or this and that because I think when you actually are the pregnant person, 
again, your expectations are, are different and you're on a different time course and, yes. and you really want to know things sooner. Um, and so I think that also sometimes delays people in making a switch. Um, but I, 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 that is one of the pieces of advice I would give is, is listen to your gut. If it's not fitting well in the beginning, it's not. It's only going to get worse. Yeah. Um, so, so you should really explore making a change if it's not feeling right. Yeah, because then later down the line, there's a trust situation, there's anxiety, and that's just not going to lend itself to a functional birth and the, the flowing of good hormones. And, and similarly, when you do change to a new doctor, there's not so much time to establish that trust and that relationship because there's less time in pregnancy left. And they're wondering, you know, a little bit like, well, why didn't it go well? Why, why, why was there sort of a, a separation in that last relationship, if you will, right? We're always wondering, you know, did that relationship go badly because of, you know, the doctor or was it something about the woman and what am I, who am I I accepting here later on? And I think that's, aside from some of the economics, I think that is one of the hesitancies for doctors accepting patients later on. Yeah, no, my own doctor, I've called upon him. He and I, I've been seeing my OB from, gosh, 20 years. And so, and he knows what I do and he's very open. He was my backup for my home births. And when I've called upon him, I'm like, I have someone at 35 weeks. He's like, Deb, what am I taking? <laughs> What's going exactly. on here? I'm going to get back to some of my questions. So Village OB is well known for practicing, as we discussed more in the midwifery model of care. How as an OB are you able to practice your philosophy of birth within the confines of a more traditional hospital like Mount Sinai? Well, there's at least a couple of questions in that one question, you know. Um, and, and I think you're touching on what I hear over and over again that a lot of moms and couples have a frustrating experience at the hospital. Um, And I I really think that a lot of this kind of grows out of the fact that I think hospitals are really designed for the more active part of labor. Um, And when our grandmother showed up in in the old days at the hospital in early labor, they were sent home. They didn't come in. It was too soon. Um, And... I sort of liken it when I when I sort of think about people doing home birth. In the beginning, are uh, people are all over their homes. They may be painting or cooking or roofing or gardening or you know you, you name it. Um, and it's their home, and they can go wherever they please. And then when things start to get really active, you know, one of our one of our moms called it hot labor. When the labor gets really hot. Uh, Typically, uh, people go to that one spot that they've picked out in their home where they're going to then have the baby. And there's, there's not the big movements that there was in the early part of labor, the big doing of laps and lots of walking. And so it's much more confined and much more in a, in a zone and more of a mental space than a big physical space. That's the, that's the phase of labor that the hospital is better suited for. And so when I see the big disconnect and people have frustrating hospital experiences is when you come in too early, too soon. And the hospital, unfortunately, is, it's a big tent. So it's very difficult for the hospital to have a set of rules for every different person. So they tend to have a set of the most restrictive rules for the most 
complicated and high-risk patients, and then they have, they get applied to all of the other moms who are just having normal labor. So you come in early labor, you want to be moving. Well, there's not much place for you to move. Uh, the hallways are only so long, and they get kind of boring after a while. It's the same old thing. You know, you want to eat and drink. And, some, you know, I think now most hospitals are recognizing the importance of drinking in labor, but still uh, the, the majority, if not all, you don't eat during during labor. Um, so that becomes a, a point of frustration. Um, the, the monitoring rules are sometimes different in early labor. Sometimes some hospitals will do intermittent, but it, it restricts your mobility. So I think that is a, a big disconnect. And what we do at, at Village OB, we sometimes you know, call it home birth at the hospital. And, and that really is about when it's safe, when it's appropriate. It is about making sure that uh, it's safe for the person to continue to stay out uh, and labor until they actually get to the phase that the, that the hospital was designed for, that much more active part. That when people are in that phase, you know, I could offer them a smorgasbord buffet and they, they don't want any of it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's all I could do to get them even to drink. So um, so that's a better phase where the, where the hospital experience becomes a much better one. And that's what we, I think, try to strive for um, at Village OB as much as possible. And I think that's how it works, even in the confines of a hospital that has lots of regulations. But do you feel any schedule pressure, like, if your client came in and they have turned the corner, they are in active labor, but it's just a slow, progressive active labor, are you feeling pressure like, get that labor going, get some pit going, we need to turn that room over? You know, it's really interesting. I, I think, you know, and many of your uh, uh, clients may have uh, seen the, the movie The Business of Being Born. Mm -hmm. um, and now that's came out quite some time ago, and yeah. I think that that was one of the um, uh, themes that were was raised in, in the film. Um, I think at the time it first came out, it wasn't so true. Uh, but as the obstetrical beds, this is certainly true of New York, we've lost a lot of hospitals that are delivering OB services, and so there is a shortage of obstetrical beds. And so labor rooms have become really, really crowded. And I do think that for those who run the labor floors now, there is an actual workflow and throughput concern. Um, I think of it a little bit like if I owned a restaurant and there are, there's a line of people down the sidewalk waiting to come in. Mm -hmm. um, then you're gonna, there's going to be a lot of focus on the busboys to clear off the table, on the waiters and waitresses to get the checks in, on the cooks to get the food out quickly, etc., um, and it can sort of lead to, you know, pressure. Um, so I, I do think there is definitely some of that. And what's fascinating is that some of the major bodies that sort of uh, provide guidance for obstetrical care, like the American College of OBGYN, the Society for uh, Maternal Fetal Medicine, in, especially in recent years, what they've, put, what they've published have actually been... Um, uh, uh, liberalizing, if you will, of the uh, timelines and, and um, better defining what really is an indication for cesarean section. Um, and I find that it's increasingly more difficult for hospitals to actually 
meet those more uh, latest and best evidence-based approaches to the care because they just don't have that capacity. Um, so, so I do think there is some truth to that now that there, that there is pressure. And I think it is also, uh, and we certainly feel this in our practice because we have a, a group of moms that are typically starting their families at an older age. And um, one of the things that's not uh, been uh, described sufficiently in the medical literature is the different different timelines and timetables and guidelines by age. Um, and so um, I think we, we understand it in sports. You know, we, we don't see so many, you know, Derek Jeter's a great athlete. Um, he's still a great shortstop, but he's, he's already retired. Why? Because he has difficulty now. It's a, a muscle performance is not the same when you're 20 versus 30 versus 40 versus 50. And we certainly have moms in their 40s and 50s here in, in the city. So the, the amount of time for labor has generally been defined based on moms in their 20s work from the 1950s. And those timelines are being applied to moms who are in their 30s and 40s and 50s even, and a whole host of other differences. So it's increasingly more difficult that with less resources, you know, more crowded labor floors, um, uh, and maybe timelines that actually don't even apply. So it really is more challenging than, than before. Um, and so I think it takes, uh, you know, experience in taking care of moms in those different age groups to understand um, when uh, something is actually uh, off a normal path and when it's actually just totally uh, normal and on course and needs to not be interfered with. So what would you suggest for women that are facing pressure from a timeline? You know, I always tell my students, I have a few things. My, I always have the three questions. Is mom okay? Is baby okay? Can we have more time? If they're being pushed, like you've been laboring this long, you've been pushing this long, and hospitals have kind of a set time. So that tends to work. Or if they're being pushed into an intervention, I always say, you know, like, ask them to pray on it, and that usually clears the room. But what what can women do if if there is a reality that, you know, I remember as a doula coming in, and sometimes the waiting room was so crowded, and then the triage, you have to wait just to get into triage, and then you're in triage, and you're ready to get admitted, and there's no room. So what can women do? Yeah. Well, I, I think that it really goes back to, you know, the initial selection of the care provider way back in the beginning. Because you think about it, you know, now you're in labor, you're in pain, you're incredibly disadvantaged to try to advocate for yourself. And, you know, your partner is probably um, even more scared than you are because they've never seen you like this. And this is really difficult for them. Um, and and um, and your doula is not really empowered in the system to to advocate effectively. So the person who really is empowered to advocate for you is your doctor or your midwife. And so that it goes back to that initial selection is really critical. Um, and you know you could discuss what the recommended timelines are. You know right at your first visit. You know you don't. You know I can sort of share with you what mm -hmm. uh, those different scenarios might look like if I fast forwarded 40 weeks in your labor now, and now you're in labor. 
Um, and so um, it, it's unfortunately, you know, where you come to a first visit, you're, there's a lot of excitement, there's a lot of happiness, and there's not there's not so much scrutiny placed. And we still don't yet know. We go we later go through to some of the childbirth classes and learn more things and read some books, and then it starts to dawn on us some of the things that we really need to ask. Right. And so you almost need a uh, preparation class in advance of, you know, getting pregnant so that when you get to that, you know, initial first, you know, or even searching for the doctor before you're pregnant, when you have time, some of our moms will search for the right pediatrician before they've even had the baby while they're pregnant, while they have the time to do so. And that's mm -hmm. a great idea. You almost need to do that for, for uh, pregnancy and birth as well, because once you're in labor, you're really, it's a really tough time to be trying to um, uh, figure things out. And there are so many different variations to the guidelines that it's it's almost impossible to say, I, I need more time for this or for that. And there's a number of different considerations. You need to have good trust with your caregiver at that time and basically go forward together. So you need to figure out who's the right person for you way, way back in the beginning. And, and I think that's more practical than just asking for time because um, sometimes that's not the, the, exactly what the person needs mm -hmm. either, you know. Right. Um, so there needs to just be mutual trust, and, and it's hard to get to on Labor Day. Yeah, every, I've talked to some really wonderful birth workers, and um, Dr. Sarah Buckley, Deborah pascali Bonero, and it always comes back to are you with the right care provider that you trust that you can let yourself be in the world of labor and do your job of birthing and let the care provider help guide that path? I'm going to stare back a little bit to something we we're talking about, kind of the labor and delivery floor and, you know, dealing with um, confines. What's the typical level of intervention that you're seeing on L&D floors, and do you think all of the intervention is necessary? Well, I think that one of the biggest changes that we see is the percentage of people getting epidural anesthesia. Um, and, and interestingly, I, I talked about some of the labor guidelines that came out from the 1950s. So this was work from Dr. Manuel Friedman uh, from the 1950s. And in, in his studies, which, which by the way, were only uh, 500 patients. So all of these guidelines actually come from a, a rather small subset of, of, of uh, patients that the studies were based on. Um, but in those studies, the epidural rate was tiny. Um, and many of the hospitals, and, and actually the data is not always perfect that you can get your hands on and what the epidural rates are in the various hospitals, um, because sometimes they distinguish, you know, between spinals versus epidurals versus combined spinal epidurals. These are all forms of regional anesthesia that are, you can sort of think of them all as epidurals, if you will. Um, and... In many hospitals, I think if they're honest uh, in New York City, that rate is 90 plus percent. Um, that's a huge, huge intervention. And while you know it provides you know incredible pain relief, you know I think everything else in life tells us you know there's no such thing as you know a free lunch. There's always a price to be paid for for that. If it's too good to be true, there's there's a catch. And there, in, that, in our experience, there is a catch. Um, and so, when you have an epidural, 
um, in, in our experience, in our clinical experience, and, and I'll admit the, many of the anesthesiologists don't agree with this viewpoint, and many of the obstetricians you know, may not uh, also agree with this viewpoint, but in our clinical experience, the epidurals, especially in that first birth, um, uh, have a, a strong influence, a strong negative influence in the labor process. So a lot of the other interventions that come along are directed at helping to counteract some of those negative forces. So we see um, a lot of IV hydration that's needed, and I could enumerate them if you want, but, um, but yeah, I do think that... for those that don't know, do you mind telling a little bit of some of the negative side, or not only negative, but just the truthful side effects of the epidural? Sure. I think that there are... Um, you know, one of the effects of the epidural is that it can uh, it can lower a mom's blood pressure, and when it lowers a mom's blood pressure, the baby also responds by a drop in the baby's heart rate. Um, so, one of the measures to help raise the blood pressure is then to uh, give IV fluids, um, and so we see um, IV fluids. You know that so that's an intervention that in many ways is directly related to the epidural because you need to bring the blood pressure up. Um, and uh, we have seen at times, you know, where, where sometimes people uh, with good intention uh, kind of get uh, nervous that the baby's not doing well because the heart rate is down and they go off for not just a C-section but an emergency C-section. That would be sort of an extreme intervention. Typically, if you can just improve the blood pressure, then the heart rate improves and the, and the sort of crisis is over. Um, so one is a simple intervention of IV fluids, another is an extreme where they do an emergency cesarean delivery. One of the other side effects of an epidural, and this is, I think, mostly true in the first vaginal birth, in the first labor. Um, when you've had a vaginal birth already, uh, it's much more forgiving on epidurals. In the, in the same way that the second birth and third birth after you've had the first one is a, is a very different birth and in general a much easier birth and a much faster birth. Um, so uh, in that first labor, we see that epidurals uh, do change the intensity of the contraction and they do change the rhythm of those contractions in the sense that the intensity gets less and the contractions space. Um, it also, uh, in our experience, has been linked with um, the changes in the rotation of the baby. So the baby ideally faces the floor, the eyes face down, the chin is tucked to the chest, and this makes the smallest diameter of the head to fit through the birth canal. But the babies often don't rotate down. They stay in a transverse position or they are even worse looking up at the ceiling, the so-called sunny side up baby, where the moms get so much back labor. Um, so that can make it difficult for uh, a baby to progress, for a cervix to open. And so the intervention that is uh, very, very... So I, I was saying that one of the things that we see is that the effect of the epidurals, uh, the contraction spacing, 
the, the strength of the contractions decreasing and the rotation of the babies, you know, being interfered with is that it needs to be uh, fixed by using Pitocin. And so the epidural rates are almost equivalent to the Pitocin rates. So if you have a 90% epidural rate, you're going to likely see that the Pitocin rate is about 90% just to remedy those things that, you know, got interfered with. Um, and so, uh, you know, again, that's another, another intervention. Um, and so, so I think a large part of the interventions that we see have to do with, you know, moms um, not being able to be mobile, not being able to be upright, whether it's seated on a ball or standing, um, and uh, getting an epidural, especially in the early part of labor. And, you know, and labor hurts, for sure it hurts. And um, it's very tempting to choose that uh, epidural that's going to take away all the pain when you're in that moment. But it, in our opinion, this is part of what leads to these many interventions in the labor. I have a question. I'm very much a believer of optimal fetal position. Um, especially if the baby is malpositioned, asynclitic, uh, what, you know, uh, OP and some variation of OP. What is it about an epidural that, is it because the mom is now stationary, she's usually on her back or on her side? What what draws the baby more into a malposition um, with an epidural? You know, I, I'm not sure that we've defined it. Uh, exactly uh, in the in the literature and with studies. Um, however, there does seem to be an importance in mechanics of of having um, something to push against to be an effective uh, pusher. And when there's a, a lot of relaxation of some of the other musculature around the uterus, that does seem to affect how the baby can rotate and how efficiently their uterus can help power the power those rotations. Um, positioning may also have something to do with it because certainly moms are not standing or uh, with their epidurals. Um, but uh, I, but I'm not sure that we actually know the answer to that question. Yeah, I was wondering if it's the relaxation because I've seen it on the other side where a woman's in her like 30th hour of labor and she's so tense and exhausted that an epidural actually helped relax her to dilate. But it didn't occur to me really, as you're saying, I'm like, oh, I wonder if it's everything got too relaxed. And yeah. so I guess if they get the epidural too early and everything gets overly soft, that, yeah, the baby's not held in a position that can find the mechanics to rotate through the pelvis for optimal yeah, position. Yeah, you know, I think this is one of the really interesting facets about nitrous oxide that's offered in so many other countries because one of the things that it does really well is, it, is it's, it's an anxiolytic. It reduces anxiety. Um, and, and, I, and then certainly the epidural does that. But in early, early labor, it reduces the anxiety with these negative effects. Yeah. Somebody who's in, been in labor 30 hours, they, they really have, you know, done their best to get to that active part. And um, that may be the right thing to do. But for, for other moms who are in earlier phases who are anxious, um, that doesn't interfere with the natural process of labor. I mean, I think about animals in the wild. They always have to be on the lookout for a predator. And labor is a very dangerous time for them because it's difficult for them to run or to fight. And so if there's tension because there's a predator lurking, 
um, it's actually very helpful to be able to sort of stop the labor so you can get away into a safer place and then continue to labor. And so when moms are um, especially anxious, I think that does have a negative effect on the labor. Um, but an epidural is just a really heavy-handed tool to, to relieve the anxiety, um, and it may be just perfect at a later stage in labor. Yeah, I absolutely hear you. What would you suggest for a woman who wants to avoid unnecessary interventions or even have no interventions at all? Well, I, I th uh, what I would say is that whenever you're, you know, whenever you're trying to do something hard, and now we've all, we've all just been watching the Olympics, and <laughs> these are the best athletes in the world, and they're trying to do something hard, which is compete against the world's best, and maybe even get a medal, or maybe even get a gold medal. And so, what I see is that they've assembled uh, around them the very best team that they can. Um, they know what they're doing, but yet they still have a coach. Right, um, they know what they're doing, but they still have a trainer, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I think that assembling that that first birth is really like going for the gold medal, and I think you need to really assemble the best team. We're very, very um, uh, pro doulas uh, in in labor, um, and we're very, and I think. We, you know, unrelated maybe to what we're chatting about today, but we are also very, very pro doulas for the postpartum or, mm -hmm. or after the birth experience because that's one of the very under recognized areas. So you need to have a good team around you. Certainly, your midwife uh, or your obstetrician, or I would say both, have an important uh, role to play in the in that team. Um, but being as prepared as you can with you know, with education, being as prepared as you can with fitness being as prepared as you can mentally, emotionally. Uh, people need to get their minds into the right place as well. Um, and that often requires a team. And, and uh, in our practice, we often um, connect with um, everyone from reflexologists to hypnotherapists to uh, chiropractors and uh, certainly childbirth educators and, and many others who to comprise that team uh, depending on what that person in particular needs. And I think that's really the approach that you need to take. And, um, and I think once you've achieved that first uh, vaginal birth, um, the, the mountain is, uh, is, a, is a less steep mountain, uh, and you're better ready for it. I absolutely agree. I'm going to shift into kind of a hot topic, birth over 35, um, especially in New York City. It's kind of a big deal, and I've had really every experience from women being almost 35 freaking out to women, well, I had, I think we actually had someone, she was 47, having her first baby. Like, it's a, it's a big thing. Do you think it needs to have such obsession and weight to, oh no, you're over 35, you know, you're now high risk or it's more per person? What do you think about this whole number of 35 for giving birth? Well, that's a, that's a complicated question. <laughs> yeah, I, I know, I know. And if, if you want to just answer bits of it, I get it, because it is. It's, I opened a big jar there. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I, I'm getting older myself, and one of the things that, you know, I don't like to admit to myself is that I can't quite do the things that I used to do or do them as well as when I was 20 or when I was 30. Um, and so... You know, I, I think the most important thing is for 
women and couples to have a baby at the appropriate time when they are really ready. Um, um, however, I think that as we get older, one has to be honest with oneself that there are some consequences physically to waiting for childbirth uh, to start for the first time at an older age. Now, when we see moms who have a baby in their early 20s and they continue having babies in their um, 30s and 40s and maybe even 50s, the labors in their 40s and 50s, it's not their first birth. Mm -hmm. um, and what I hear often um, when I have a patient is, uh, who's, let's say, 40 or in her 40s, um, she might say, well, you know, my mom had me when she was 45. But her mom was not having her as her first child when she was 45. She's having her maybe as a second or third or et cetera. So the first birth is harder as we age. And, um, and so I think that a recognition that um, for many it will go smoothly and for some they may need some help to achieve a vaginal birth. It may not just occur naturally, in particular when people are um, having um, assisted reproduction to get pregnant in the first place. This hasn't occurred through sort of a natural you know, process, and so the labor may not also uh, go forward sort of just as naturally as one would like and hope for. So I think setting some um, expectations that it may not be possible to have a completely unintervened upon uh, childbirth as we get into the older age brackets. And what I typically see, you know, as a high-risk doctor, I don't think we think about pregnancies as high-risk and low-risk. We just take care of people. Um, and, and, I, and I think Europe in some ways does it better than us. Instead of sort of having this artificial line of age 35, less than age 35, everything is great. And once you have that 35th birthday, suddenly we need to worry about things. I think they really do a better job of trying to inform uh, their, their moms about what their risks are at whatever age they happen to be. Um, so what I would say is as moms uh, get um, older and beyond 35 in particular, they can expect that they may be um, offered uh, more tests in the first half of pregnancy that are related to um, finding out if the baby has any genetic problems. And then in their uh, labor later on, uh, uh, I guess before we get to the labor, in the second half of pregnancy, there is um, a concern that the placenta is working well to support the growth of the baby. You know, we're used to our children, as they grow, needing more and more. You know, a baby needs a little bit of food, a teenager needs a whole lot more. Um, so uh, as, the, as the fetus grows from 20 weeks to 40 weeks, it actually needs more and more from that placenta mm -hmm. at a time when that placenta is sort of maybe running out of steam. The fridge may be starting to get empty towards the end of the pregnancy. And so that may be, that may be more true. There, is, there are some studies that indicate that that may be more true in the older age group. Um, I have to say my clinical experience has been 
that older moms often do very well with their pregnancies, um, but the distinction is often really in labor, um, and that the, the uterus does not contract as efficiently in our um, older ages as it does in our younger ages. And I think this takes us back to the sports analogy. I mm -hmm. think the uterus is a muscle, and it performs better when it's younger. So um, just kind of looking at that 20 to 40 week, they're making sure baby's growing, staying on track. It, does it need to have an ultrasound every time? Can the can the can it just be the measurement or the Leopold maneuver? I had a friend who's uh, she just turned 36 with her first, and she had an ultrasound at every single visit because they were concerned she was you know past 35. Is that overkill? Is that just that care provider? What do you think? Well, I think that. These are sort of the discussions that it's helpful to get out, you know, early on in the pregnancy. Um, we know how old somebody's going to be in their second <laughs> half of pregnancy, right, right. At, at first visit. So it's a good time to sort of discuss what is the um, approach or what are the options that, you know, people can choose. You know, and there are different levels of experience and skill amongst the practitioners. Mm -hmm. um, a very experienced practitioner might be able to estimate with their hands quite well how the baby is growing. On the other hand, mom come, moms come in different shapes and sizes, right. and it can be challenging sometimes to, you know, that's, that error rate to the exams by Leopold, you know, could be significant. And then what if we have twins? Mm -hmm. uh, which is another another subject altogether. What if we have fibroids, which are sort of these, I think of them as sort of these uh, rubber balls in the uterus that can, you know, take up some space, make the uterus be larger and make it difficult to feel the baby as distinguished from the fibroid. And uh, fibroids are very common, you know, uh, maybe a third or even a half of, of women have some degree of fibroids. So it's a matter of what is the best ruler. What's the best ruler for your caregiver? Is it their hands or is it their sonogram? Mm -hmm. But in general, um, the sensitivity of the ultrasound um, in, in skilled hands, again, the scans need to be done by experienced people. Um, they sometimes are, are worse than, than helpful if they're not done in experienced hands. But in experienced hands, when you see well, the error rates are really um, probably the most accurate way to assess the size of the baby. That They generally are the best ruler. Um, so uh, I think I, what, I, what we do in our practice is we talk with our moms about the different choices that they have. We talk to them about uh, potential concerns of ultrasound and, and repeated ultrasound, and we find a path that people are comfortable with, um, and um, and that's I think usually the best approach. Wonderful. I also want to talk a little bit about VBACs because, as I mentioned when we first started this, that your practice is so well known for supporting women in VBACs. Well, for those that don't know, VBAC is vaginal birth after cesarean. Can you explain how you support women and tips for looking for a, to have a care provider that supports a VBAC, what a woman may want to advocate for? Yeah, VBAC is an is a interesting subject um, for anybody who either as a doctor, as a midwife, as a doula, or you know, as a partner, or just any observer, if they've ever been part of the complication, which is uterine rupture, where the uterus uh, 
tears in the area of the uh, old cesarean section scar on the inside where the uterus is. If anybody's been part of that, they recognize that as something that's really serious and really scary. And that's the, the main reason why so many couples have a hard time finding doctors who are, um, you know, really motivated to do vaginal birth. What's, what's called the trial of labor after cesarean, a TOLAC, T-O-L-A-C. Um, because that is a, you know, a very, you know, scary and high pressure situation. Um, and, um, and so cesareans happily have become so safely done today that that tends to be a preferred path for many providers and certainly for some couples. Um, however, um, the idea of having a trial of labor um, is encouraged. Um, it's it's sur supported by um, our national bodies. I was touching on this earlier, American College of OBGYN, the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine, you'll find that they encourage uh, and think that it's, it's actually very reasonable and very appropriate for a woman with a prior cesarean section to consider having a, a trial of labor after cesarean. Um, and yet we find that it's practiced so infrequently so that the, the national rate, if you've had a prior cesarean, is only about 10% deliver vaginally and 90% deliver by repeat C-section. Um, so I think that getting on the table is especially important in that first visit with your doctor. Um, will they do a trial of labor or they won't? And what about their partners? Uh, their other uh, partners in their practice, whoever covers them, um, what is their uh, motivation in terms of um, uh, cesarean section? I find that, you know, uh, the practices that, you know, say, no, we won't do it, in some ways they're doing you a favor, at least they're being straightforward. Um, frequently what I see is in practices that um, don't do a lot of trial of labor, don't do a lot of VBACs, um, there is sometimes, uh, yes, yes, we can try, we'll see how it goes. Um, and invariably, there's a number of different reasons why a cesarean needs to be done again. So I think an important question for couples is to really ask um, what percentage of the patients in their practice who have had a prior C-section uh, go on to have a trial of labor, um, and what percentage of those who go on to have a trial of labor um, succeed, or I don't like to use that word succeed, but have a vaginal birth. Um, I think that will give you a sense of whether that practice um, uh, is a good one to go to for vaginal birth after cesarean. Um, and I would expect that the number should be something like, um, you know, at least 70 or 80 percent of uh, moms who attempt labor have a vaginal birth. Um, and if the numbers in that practice are less than that, they may not be doing uh, enough uh, to support uh, the, the, the labor and uh, allow the, the vaginal birth to succeed. That's great, because I do have a lot of students that will say, oh, my doctor's on board, and then around 35-ish weeks, they're saying, but they're starting to talk about a cesarean. I thought I had a VBAC doctor, and, yeah. and it's, it's a place of um, sadness if the mom started to get herself ready for a vaginal birth. So I have one more question. Oh, unless you had something else to add to that. Well, I was just going to say some of the things, you know, it's often the baby's too small, the baby's too big. Um, you know, or so getting out some of those sub questions can be helpful. 
do, does the practice have a size cutoff that they would say, okay, now the baby's too big to have a, a trial of labor? Um, sometimes somebody's had a, a C-section and the baby was seven and a half pounds. And then as you get towards the end, the doctor says, oh, well, this baby is bigger than seven and a half pounds and you had a C-section for the other one, so you're going to need a C-section for this one. So how do they determine or is there a size cutoff that, that they use? Um, another good one is the gestational age. Um, some practices will say, well, if you're not in spontaneous labor by X number of weeks, mm -hmm. is it 39 weeks, is it 40 weeks, is it 41 weeks? You know, and, and if you went overdue, there may be a tendency that you'll go overdue again. And so if your practice is going to cut off at 39 weeks, that's a practice that you're not going to even have a chance at labor um, if you're interested in, in a VBAC. Um, uh, and then I think sometimes people have a reason for labor to be started. That's an induction. Um, I, it's reasonable to inquire if you've had a prior C-section. Does the practice go ahead and uh, offer an induction if it's indicated uh, before somebody's in labor? So one of the scenarios might be a mother's blood pressure is high and she needs to be delivered. If they've had a prior C-section, would they consider inducing the labor or is that an automatic C-section? So those are, might be some good questions in particular for the moms who have had a prior C-section. Those are great. I often hear the um, for VBAC, they have to go by their due date or it's a C-section or babies getting too big. Those are two of the biggest things that um, are the feedback. I want, before we have to jump off, I want to talk a little bit about village midwifery. So that's something new and exciting for our community. Will you talk a little bit about that? Sure, I would love to. And this really kind of goes back. It's a nice way to come full circle in our conversation. We started talking about the differences in midwifery care and obstetrical care. And I mentioned that, you know, we really think that the two really go together. And so what we've tried to do at Village uh, uh, Maternity, it's actually Village Maternity, uh, not Village Midwifery, um, although oh, we wanted to call it Village Midwifery. Sorry, <laughs> um, I don't know where I got that from. I thought it was Village Midwifery. Uh, no, <laughs> it it's actually was our original title, but as a curiosity in New York that um, physicians uh, can't own a midwifery practice. Oh, okay. You can in New Jersey, but you can in New York. So, so we called it Village Maternity instead. Um, but really what it is, is trying to get at the true spirit of collaboration between the doctor and the midwife. Um, it's, so it's availing our moms, it's sort of an expansion of our, of our current practice. Um, it's hard for us to do it all, and it's hard for us to do it uh, uh, for all of our uh, uh, couples uh, who come from various economic means. And so we wanted to try to expand it to be more accessible to more people, but not veer away from that model of combining the two disciplines. Um, and so we, we've linked uh, physicians, obstetricians with midwives. So it's our model of care in, uh, that we use in village obstetrics, which we call minimally invasive OB, for lack of a better word, <laughs> um, coupled, uh, you know, with, uh, so it's our, it's our model, it's our supervision with care generally rendered by midwives, but with participation before there's a problem from the OB doctors and 
somebody doesn't risk out um, except for the most complex problems um, because we know that a pregnancy might be complicated but yet the birth might be straightforward um, and so just because somebody might have diabetes or things like that doesn't necessarily mean that they can't still be availed to the benefits of midwifery care and I think that's what's a bit unusual and not so available in our city is is uh, linking that up and I, and I would hasten to add it's, it's really I think no, through no fault of the midwives, they're yearning for participation from their OB colleagues, and they typically don't get it. So, so we decided to kind of take it on ourselves and link those two disciplines together in, in a way that we think provides really the best type of care. So how would someone go about working with the midwives at Village Maternity? Um, so they, they can, you know... Um, call our office number and uh, learn a little bit about the practice over the phone. Uh, and then if uh, they're further interested, they can come in and meet with the midwife. Um, and um, it's designed for her to have the majority of her visits with the midwife and to have visits with the obstetrician near the beginning uh, of the pregnancy to kind of review what the plan of the pregnancy is and to have a visit with the physician towards uh, the end of the pregnancy to review what the plan for the delivery is and to be availed to uh, high-risk consultation should they need it along the way without having to leave the care of, of the midwife practice. And where would they, if where would a woman deliver if they were working with Village Maternity? So We've started to, we, we, you know, Village Maternity is a new practice, mm -hmm. and um, one of the things that we really recognized, which touches on, again, some of your um, excellent points in the beginning, about the difficulties in hospitals. And as I mentioned, some of the difficulties in hospitals have to do with just the tremendous volume that they're dealing with and, and having to uh, sometimes limit options for moms because of that volume and having to care for so many people at the same time. So we teamed up with uh, Metropolitan Hospital, which is a very fine hospital and has um, uh, capacity for and interest to support, you know, moms in labor. Um, and we're working together on, uh, you know, having uh, wireless monitoring for moms in labor so that uh, if they are uh, in labor and they are in that stage where they want to you know, do those big walks that we talked about, that they can do so and still be monitored. So you can have the best of all worlds, knowing that the baby is safe and yet not restrict your mobility. Working with them to uh, bring in a nitrous oxide program so that you can have some of that anxiety relieved um, and uh, for, for some of the moms uh, who just need a little something extra and can help them to avoid the epidural that, they, that they, they didn't want to have. Or for the mom who actually has an unmedicated birth, 
but then the examination to you know check for any tears or put some stitches in can be so so sensitive nitrous oxide is a perfect uh, tool to, to provide uh, relief for that type of examination and um, availing moms of uh, increased use of water and labor uh, so water can be a very very powerful uh, help to the laboring mom whether it's in a tub or in a shower um, and so Metropolitan has been very receptive to ushering in these programs and so uh, it, it's uh, created a, a birth center environment and in fact the whole hospital has been geared towards baby friendly services so there's tremendous support for breastfeeding services um, uh, everything from cup feeding a baby if necessary uh, they have no formula stocked in the hospital and that which is um, like those hospitals that like other hospitals that have baby friendly designation there's not a reliance on formula. It, it's formula only comes into the picture when there is a problem as far as nutrition and breastfeeding is, is not an option. Um, so that's what makes uh, Metropolitan very well suited for the village maternity practice. And we're also expanding uh, that relationship to, to other hospitals. Those are um, discussions that are ongoing is to create that environment in other centers as well. Well, it's really exciting because I think from what you're talking about, it's such a departure from many of the other hospital settings and protocols in New York City. So for even though a podcast is, you know, everywhere, for those that do listen in New York and you're pregnant or thinking of become pregnant, this is a wonderful, wonderful option. So I urge you really to sit with that and to perhaps go forward because it's it's really different than a lot of what I was seeing when I was an active doula on the L and D floors. So is there, do you have any last little tips for our listeners? Um, you know, I, I think this is a subject we love to talk about. We never tire of talking about it. We could, we could talk all night. Perhaps <laughs> we'll talk some more again. But um, I, think, I think we it's important for everyone to have the expectation that joy needs to be in the mix. It's, it's one of the key ingredients. So moms and dads and couples need to not be afraid um, and to go forward and to make sure that the, the joy is there. Um, and similarly for our caregivers, our, our midwives, our doctors, our doulas, um, we need to make sure we maintain the joy in, in the work as well. Um, and so we're, we're really excited, I think, for what's happening for birth uh, in New York City. I think we are in the midst of a real change and a change for the better. And you're a big part of that change. So from someone that works with thousands of pregnant women, I thank you for being um, at the forefront of seeing the necessity of change and for helping usher that change in. So I've really enjoyed our chat today. I'm going to put on our notes, our notes where people can find you. We'll link to your website. We'll link to Village Maternity and all your fun social media stuff. Thank you so much for your time this evening. I know it's probably been a long day. Oh, no, th thank you, too. And I know it's been long for you, too, but it's been a, it's been a real pleasure. And uh, 
look forward to seeing more of each other. Yes, absolutely. All right, everyone, have a wonderful night. And for those that are listening, please go to iTunes or Stitcher and rate and review us. And again, as I mentioned, I'm going to have all the ways to reach out to Village OB or Village Maternity as well as their social media. All right, everyone, have a great night. Thanks, Dr. Musali. Be well. Thank you. Good night, everyone. Bye. Bye. This has been an episode of Yoga Birth Babies, produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. You can catch us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Periscope. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Thanks for listening.